0: Hi, I'm Dr. Clive Nawonka, lecturer in Film, Culture and Society at UCL and associate of the Sarah parker Ramon Centre for Racism and Racialization at University College London. Today, it is a pleasure to be joined by Professor Farah Yasmin Griffin. Farah is the William B. Ransford Professor of English and Comparative Literature and African-American Studies at Columbia University and was the inaugural chair of its African-American and African diaspora studies department. Farah received her BA from Harvard, where she majored in American history and literature, and her PhD in American studies from Yale. Her major fields of interest are American and African American literature, music, and history, and has published widely on issues of race and gender, feminism, and cultural politics. Farah is the author of Who Set You Flowing, the African American migration narrative, If You Can't Be Free, Be a Mystery, In Search of Billie Holiday, and co author with Celine Washington of Calling at the Limits of Call. Cool. Miles Davis, John Coltrane, and the greatest jazz collaboration ever. Her most recent book, Read Until You Understand The Profound Wisdom of Black Life and Literature, was published by W.W. Norton in autumn 2021. And in January of this year, it won the 2022 Prose Award for Literature from the Association of American Publishers. Read Until You Understand is a deeply personal and wide ranging mediation on Black culture, political freedom, and humanity. Throughout the podcast, we'll be discussing Farah's latest book its themes, and some of the ideas that have informed Farah's writing and scholarship. Farah, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I want to begin by the actual first line in your book introduction, where you say, this book begins with a girl and ends with grace. It's always an impossible question to answer within the confines of a podcast discussion, but what is the essence of reading to you understand?
1: I think that At its core is sort of an appreciation for writing, but not only writing, various forms of cultural production, primarily writing, creative writing by African-American writers, but also an appreciation for the culture that produced me and that gave me a context for reading and understanding those authors when I encountered them. And ultimately, both my book and the figures about whom I write, I believe, have something to say about certain fundamental questions that concern all of us, whether they be questions of justice or mercy, community, love, And in the context of the United States, of course, race and racism, but more importantly, the ways that Black people have countered the impact of white supremacy on their daily lives.
0: It's interesting you mentioned that about the ways in which we think around the question of race and racism and how one pushes back against these forces. I was fortunate enough to be in the congregations, I call it, at the very intimate gathering at Harvard in um, February 2020, where you gave such a powerful keynote address at the Department of African-American and African Studies anniversary, with, of course, a very heartfelt and verbally pyrotechnic introduction from Cornell West. <laughs> you talked quite poignantly about what you saw as the three sites of engagement for African-American African disparate studies in the current conjuncture, in the classroom, in the world, and in the planet. I would love you to expand on this.
1: Well, you know, in the classroom, because we all often think of Black Studies as an in- academic enterprise, you know, an intellectual enterprise, and much of the work that we do together happens in the classroom, both understanding those ideas that have given birth and shape and form to Black studies, and also trying to further the intellectual nature of that project. So it's the work we do in the classroom and how we engage with other discourses and other kinds of ideas. But Black Studies has also always existed in the world beyond the academy. And in fact, you know this better than anyone, but that our earliest formation doesn't even necessarily happen in the academy. And many of our intellectuals mm-hmm. were not, you know, formally a part of the academy. And the ideas were born in conversation with academics academic discourses, but not to the exclusion of them. They come out of the experience of a people in the diaspora trying to make sense of the world and the absurdities that they found themselves Mm. confronted with. And then I thought that the sort of engagement with what I call the planet, I was very much inspired by artists and scholars and thinkers who were engaging questions of climate and environment and trying to help us imagine futures that, you know, on the other side (laughs) of the world as we know it, you know, if not certainly trying to save the world from the destruction of human beings, but also trying to imagine what it would be like to build a different future, one that was not so embroiled in the various kinds of inequality and you know damage and destruction to the environment and certainly damage and destruction to human beings, especially those human beings who are of African descent.
0: I want to touch upon the classroom and the significance. And one thing you did mention at the conference in your keynote that's always struck with me is the ways in which you place such an importance on black studies that goes beyond the academy. And one thing you did say was the scholarship produced by Black Studies has enhanced and expanded the traditional academic disciplines, especially literary studies, history, anthropology, and sociology. I'm interested in how these formative years within that structured Black Studies program contributed to your scholarship today and beyond.
1: Well, I think in a number of ways. One, before I even knew about You know, something called Black Studies, I realized that intellectually I was formed in that context. I became aware of. Black writers and Black thinkers and that they had something important to say to all of us who, who engaged their ideas. I, I learned that before ever entering the academy and before ever knowing what a formal thing called Black Studies was. And it was because I grew up in a city with a large Black population, a very politically engaged city, a city with a long tradition of political engagement on the part of Black activists and thinkers.
0: The Philadelphia story.
1: That's Philadelphia. And I, you know, I heard of Fanon as a girl because the sort of independent bookstores that my father and I would go to had black skin, white mask and the wretched of the earth on the table to sell right next to, you know, something about Huey Newton or, or right next to something by Du Bois. And so there was this sort of excitement about this body of literature that didn't seem to exist in a vacuum, but it existed in the context of sort of political movement in a very vibrant political culture. And so that was my first understanding of study, right, of the importance of study, more so than studies. <laughs> and then by the time I got to college, there were fights to Harvard had an African-American studies department. It departmentalized early, but it did not give very many resources to that department. So there was always the fight. We were always engaged in a fight to have the university support this departmentalization that they had overseen, but not to let it flounder. And there weren't a lot of Black people doing Black studies on the faculty, but there were lots of people coming through. And you had the sense that if you pursued this line of work, you were going to be in on the building of something remarkable and that you were simply the next iteration of something that had been longstanding. And part of that iteration was its institutionalization in academic institutions. But unlike many academic projects, this one just felt like there was a sense of mission and a sense of purpose Mm. and that the academy was one site of it. And then by the time I got to graduate school, two things were happening at Yale. One, Yale actually had one of the most vibrant sort of African-American, African diaspora studies programs. And when I was there, I was in American studies, which at that time was being very much informed and influenced by cultural studies, by, you know, Black British cultural studies. Hazel Carby was coming. She was on her way. Paul Geroy would be there. And so there was this combination of what was happening in cultural studies, kind of Stuart Hall cultural studies. And this trajectory of Black studies at the same time. So at every step of the way, there was a feeling of profound intellectual excitement because it it really did feel like you weren't engaging something that, you know, was stultified and written (laughs) in stone, but that it was something that over which there was a contest, there were arguments, there were debates and you were maybe getting in on, if not the ground floor, certainly one of the early floors in helping to build and erect what Black Studies was becoming. And I think, you know, we recently have been in another iteration of that as well.
0: Absolutely. And I'm, I'm really struck by the way that you make that quite crucial distinction between study and studies. Yeah. And that feels to be quite central to that struggle and contestation that you're describing.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think that, you know, the sense of study, and again, of course, like, you know, Fred Moten and Harvey have talked about this, but I think that there really was, for me, a sense of study, as you know, when I describe that context, that early context in Philadelphia you know, there were reading groups and you learned that one of the things that the Panthers were reading work was Fanon. So, you know, I remember even as a schoolgirl trying to read Fanon, asking the librarian about it. And she said, that's a little above your level, you know, <laughs> but it was because I knew that this was something that folk were reading and that it was considered important to the movements that we were building. And so that study, it wasn't individualistic. It was something that was communal, it was necessary for movement building, but it was also necessary for having a sense of oneself as a subject in the
0: world. One of the ways in which Corner West described the distinctiveness of your work on that day at Harvard was through the term he used, cross-genre analysis. There feels something that is highly multi-interdisciplinary and about your writing, your research, it feels instinctively cross genre there's something necessary about your work that has to be striding through these different disciplines and paradigms.
1: Oh, wow, what a great question. I think so for me, when I learned that there was something called kind of an interdisciplinarity, mm-hmm. um, I thought that makes sense. Like that's that's the way I'm thinking anyway. And I'll tell you why. I think it's because my interests, more so than a disciplinary interest, although you know I am partial to the literary for various reasons that we can talk about, But my interest really was Black people. (laughs) And it was what Black people found themselves up against, the kind of enormity of what they found themselves up against, and then the innovative and creative and extraordinary ways with which they responded and created and built things. And so, you know, given that interest, then anything that could help me understand that better, any writer, (laughs) any body of work, that could help me have a better sense of that. Those were the tools I wanted access to. And, you know, I would find that in some things that, you know, people with sociological training had talked about it more, but people with literary training had not. So I needed to read The Sociologist. Or if I found myself talking about, as I do in this book, values like mercy and grace, you know, I'm not a particularly religious person, but the people who wrote about those things were theologians. So I needed to read what theologians had to say. And I think all of that, you know, needs to be brought to bear on the study of Black life. And then, you know, I go back, it's probably a cliche, but I go back to Du Bois, who in the souls of Black folk, to get to his sense of what the souls of Black folk have to tell us, like what we can learn, how do we interpret if we listen closely on the ground, then we need to know how to listen in every way and how to think in every way. And so there you meet there, Du Bois the historian, Du Bois the sociologist, Du Bois the short story writer, Du Bois the music scholar, Du Bois the scholar of Black religion, like you meet all those Du Boises, he brings all of that to bear to give us some insight and I think that kind of thinking that way of thinking has always been exciting to me, but also, you know, a kind of model as
2: well.
0: Reading the inner notes of your book, we learned that the book's title, read until you understand was inspired by a note written to you by your late father, when you were age nine, how has that note as was encouragement as a challenge, or as an inheritance, inspired and informed your exploration of that life, that cultural forms, and subsequently the book?
1: Yeah, um, every one of those ways that you that you talked about. I mean, I think that my father wrote me that note. And so it was something he wanted me to do. And, you know, here's a book, read it until you understand. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I thought he just wants me to understand it. Like he wants me to know what they're talking about in this book, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know. And so that's what I did. I read it so that I could understand it. And if you don't understand, he said, ask questions. There's nothing wrong with asking questions. But my father died shortly after writing me that note. And so then it became like a lifelong mission. It was like something he left me with. So there's the inheritance, right? And that more than the destination of reading this particular book until you know what it's about, it became a process, a process of reading to understand, which means that it's a lifelong process, that you will always be engaged in the process of trying to understand things, you know, and what will happen, you know, is that there will be more things for you to read and more things for you to understand. And that has been true both as a kind of life lesson, but also as a direction for my work, you know, trying to, in Who Set You Flowing, realizing that the historian, my personal, my own family had migrated they were part of the great migration
2: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: and then realizing that they weren't the only ones right that there was this whole big movement mass movement of peoples well why and the answer to why is well the sociologists say this and the historians say that the migrants themselves said this thing and this is what they said in music but this is what they said in their letters and then this is what the artists had to say about it trying to understand the impact of migration, the whys of migration in Harlem Nocturne, trying to understand what I think of as a most remarkable generation of Black people, those who come of age in the 1940s and who kind of are militant and in their refusals (laughs) and wanting to understand them, wanting to know more about them. This is the generation that gave us Malcolm X, Miles Davis, John Coltrane. (laughs) You know, it's just... I I need to understand that generation. And so that it really became a read until you understand has become for me a way of
0: life. Mm. And that understanding becomes so prevalent in the book in terms of how you draw on these questions of politics, Mm -hmm. history, and literary theory, you know, these interrogations of democracy, humanity, black art forms and cultural practices. Am I incorrect in suggesting that you're searching for the live reality of literature in the book?
1: I think so. I mean, I think there's the lived reality of it. There's the way that being a reader of literature can inform our living, can inform and inspire and nurture our imagination. And, you know, I provide a set of interpretations, but those aren't definitive interpretations. I see literature, and I hope that I share this, as an invitation, an invitation to read and to think and to agree or disagree or to build your own in the process and also that old-fashioned thing. Is it Kenneth Burke? I mean, it old-fashioned kind of literature as equipment for living. It's, you know, mm-hmm. it's part of our toolkit. It's part of our toolkit. It's not the only part, but it's it's an important tool for us to have.
0: The late and great Tony Morrison is a constant intellectual and spiritual resource throughout the book. Sadly, you know, the opening moments of what became COVID-19 in mean, 2020 and became the pandemic denied me the chance of actually attending the five volumes of Tony Morrison Retrospective, which you were mm-hmm. heavily involved in, in London at the ICA in March 2020. I'm referring to your opening lecture titled Ethics of Care, Restorative Justice and Healing in Tony Morrison's Late Fiction. Is it possible to even sum up how important Tony Morrison's work has been to your own trajectory?
2: Oh
1: my goodness. You know, as we were talking right today is her birthday, actually. I can't think of any figure outside of my father who has been more important to me intellectually. And I have lots of intellectual figures who are important to me, but she is among the earliest, having encountered her as a girl and consistently in every stage of my development. And it's not so much Tony in her person, although I knew her personally and loved her dearly, but it's Tony on the page who taught me how to think about things. She gave me the freedom to challenge certain things like linear narratives about history, <laughs> a way of looking at history, a way of looking at Black life mining it for its ethical dimensions without romanticizing it. I think that there are just numerous ways, and at each stage also in my development, my thinking, reading Morrison. She's been along this lifelong journey with me, and there are insights that you know I encounter at different stages that I didn't see early on. It doesn't mean I've always agreed with her, but oh, how rich and delicious even the disagreements are, because I'm smarter on the other side of them.
0: Mm-hmm. I've read Read to You Understand twice now, mm-hmm. and I'm fascinated still by the idea that you foreground in your writing that of care mm-hmm. and how it speaks to, I guess, in a Derrida way, a kind of very, very rhizomatic approach to so many different questions, one of which is the aesthetic Can you talk a bit more about your interest in the aesthetics of care through literature?
1: I think that the aesthetics of care, the way I understand them, are twofold. One, it's the way that authors like Morrison and Baldwin and others Will represent, portray, talk about moments of care, how they will foreground them, what happens aesthetically in the text when they are in those moments, the ways that they highlight how human beings take care of each other and the necessity of that care for recognizing our own humanity and the humanity of others, the heightened language, the ways that they might set it off in a text. There's even some ways of calling attention to things by making it a very quiet moment in the text, by quieting things down. Then there is the care with which they portray people who might otherwise be dismissed. You know, the person who's an alcoholic or struggling with drug addiction or the person who's not necessarily been good, who in other instances might be a villain, who might even be doing something destructive and villainous in the text. But the care that's given to show us that they are not devils, they are humans and how they came to be that way. So those are all kind of dimensions of an aesthetic of care that I see at work in this fiction. But there's also the way that they highlight what I call borrowing from many early feminist thinkers, an ethic of care. Particularly an ethic of care amongst marginalized communities, the care with which we treat each other, and how the figure who is cared for receives some sort of healing, not a, not a return to wholeness, but a capacity to be able to continue to function and do good in the world, as Morrison says. But also the people who offer the care, they rise <laughs> as human beings by caring, they become better So I'm fascinated by both what I understand to be an ethic of care, but also the aesthetics of care, the care with which they do this work. And I see it even in some visual arts as well, or in film. I mean, I often think of Barry Jenkins, I think of him as a filmmaker whose aesthetic includes many things, but to me, it also includes an aesthetic of care. There are moments in his film where he just seems to be taking such care with the way that he's presenting Black people you know, lingering on the tones of their skin and the light. And there's just an exquisiteness about it that I find very inspiring.
0: One of the ways I think for me that you display a similar ethic of care in your writing, and in many ways I'm thinking about Raymond Williams' work and his own kind of cultural archaeology of of words and terms, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: is the way in which your book is populated with some key words, grace, Mm -hmm. mercy, beauty, it seems there's a particular careful attention to what these words mean,
2: mm-hmm.
0: how they can be kind of generative in particular fiscal, cultural, racial conjunctures.
1: I think so. And those are sort of words and concepts that, you know, they have long histories, right? They, they they have histories through time and across nation and across, which is also why I wanted to spend time with them when talking about Black life. And then I wanted to talk about this very specific, not a kind of monolithic Black culture, but the very specific Black community that I know most well that I came up through also, I think, had something to say about those kinds of concepts beauty, and beauty in terms of the quotidian, right? Beauty not in terms of a kind of hierarchy of, you know, sort of racial traits or anything like that, but the cultivation of beauty, which is a form of care in our everyday lives whether it be a houseplant or something over which they have control, a perfectly grown tomato. It doesn't have to be, you know, a flower, Uh, the way one makes a garment, the way one wears a garment, the way one styles a garment, that or grace, how people, you know, it's a religious concept on the one hand, but on the other hand, what does it mean for people to be conduits of grace to each other for no apparent reason, just because you are, you know, uh, that you are worthy something good, something beautiful, something, a chance to breathe, a moment of rest. Those are the kinds of things that I wanted to linger on in this book. And then mercy, which I actually, mercy appears early in the book. Grace closes it. Grace is the greater value to me. But mercy, because it appears so often in both you know, literature by African-Americans, but also the Black vernacular, and can have such a multitude of meanings that, you know, again, it was a chance to linger and see what are the philosophical meanings, and something I learned from Tony, what are the deeper philosophical and ethical meanings embedded in the ways that we use language, in in the ways that we use what we call the vernacular, when somebody says, Lord, have mercy, (laughs) what meanings might we find in that, and how might we mine that for some meaning that is significant?
0: The book feels to me, and you actually mentioned this in your introduction, like accumulation of a lifetime of thinking, but also of education and, and pedagogy. I say this in a more bi-directional way, in that your book for me seems to bridge your own intellectual inspirations, many of whom, as you already said, existed outside the academe. And you marry this with the horizontal relationships you actually have established with your teaching with students. That for me seems very, very unique to bring in that generative space of the classroom into something so definite and so intellectually written
1: yeah the classroom is of central importance to me and this book could not have been written without it in many ways because my students it, it's such a reciprocal relationship like you know i come up with a syllabus and a set of text and i say we're going to read these and this is what i think we'll find there and then they find things that i never even thought about looking for or you know they tell me what's missing or what they want to know more about i've had students you know i give a course on black girls and i i say you know the syllabus is a work in progress. We can change it. What's missing? And they say, you know, said to me, this was in oh maybe five seven years ago. They were like, well, there's nothing on trans girls here. You know, how can you have a syllabus about girls and have anything about trans girls? And I was like, you're absolutely right. Let's go back to the drawing board. And for this book, it was this chapter on justice in particular. And I had all this stuff on justice and what I thought black writers had to say about it and think about it. And finally, you know, they were like, you know, Professor Griffin, um, we're really interested in in like. Isn't there something on black vigilantes? <laughs> you know, like we we, we want to know what the vigil, What's the vigilantes take on this? you know, <laughs> And I thought, oh, you're right, let's go look for that. And then I talk to my colleagues, what do you recommend? What what should we be reading? So that my own thinking, you know, I'm forced out the box and the comfort of my own thinking, even when I think I'm being adventurous, I'm not being adventurous enough. And as I was finishing the book, one of the reasons why I was able to finish it, you mentioned that wonderful Toni Morrison Festival in London. I was on my way there, and COVID shut us down. Mm. And we thought it would be a week. We thought it would be two weeks, but it wasn't. Um, My classes went online. And out of the care for my students, so concerned about them, I went back into the syllabus. I changed it. I took out, instead of rushing through a bunch of readings, I said, we're going to read fewer books and we're going to read them more deeply. And I decided that the most important thing was to create a space of community, uh, that the books would be a reason for our coming together in that space. And that really shaped the way I thought about what I was writing and, and also wanting to give them something like, I remember one of the assignments I said is like, you know, it feels like the end of the world. And in some ways it is because worlds do end <laughs> and we build new ones. So what kind of new world are you going to be committed to building? And all of a sudden it became not about answers. It became something more about imagining imagining new possibilities, imagining different kinds of futures. Here's a chance for us to do that. And that's what the classroom provides. And then it seeps into the work. It's not that the scholarship is only informing the classroom. The classroom is seeping into the scholarship too. Mm.
0: What strikes me as so distinctive about the book is how you use the African-American literary tradition in terms of prose, in terms of language, in terms of vernacular, to critique something as ossified as the U.S. experiment with democracy.
1: Yes, absolutely. In fact, that was, you know, initially when I first started thinking of the book, I'd been thinking about it for years and I knew it was some things that I wanted to write and I thought I was going to write a book on Tony and it was just a bunch of other different kinds of things I thought. And then the 2016 U.S. presidential election came and it was clear to some of us that the man who won had a real strong chance of winning, you know, and many people thought that wasn't possible. But many of us knew this is America. And he's tapping into something very American. And there's anger and viciousness. And there's race hatred still there. And, you know, he's saying things that people believe. And he's also it's not just America, but there's a kind of rising tide of this kind of lean into fascism. So one of the things I thought was, what have these thinkers had to say about this so-called democracy? They've been here since the beginning and they've been contributing their thoughts about it since the beginning and have tried to hold it up to its ideals and have been faced with all kinds of resistance. So initially I thought, well, maybe this is a book about what that tradition of Black writing has had to say about democracy and has to teach us about it. But then, as I went back and reread, I was reminded of what I knew all along that it was never just about the United States. It was never just about democracy. Yes, there are questions about democracy there. They've been concerned about things that are much bigger, broader, longer lasting than that. So, you know, the purview of the book broadened. But having said that, I was writing it during the four years of that presidency and how it came to an end. And at every step of the way, I thought, Black thinkers have pointed this out, it's, oh, they've been the prophets, and not the prophets in terms of, you know, knowing the future, although they do know the future, because they know the past, and they know the present, but because they've spoken the truth about what this place really is, and they've often been ignored, they've often been ignored, if not censored in some ways.
0: You've said in other forums that there were certain chapters, um, in what you found difficult to write notably rage and resistance. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in why you found this chapter particularly challenging, but -hmm. also the importance of the 19th century abolitionist poet Francis Harper to that writing, not so much the intellectual framework per se, but more as an emotional resource in that endeavor.
2: So
1: the two chapters that I found most difficult to write were the rage and resistance chapter and the death chapter for different reasons. So, the Rage and Resistance chapter wasn't initially there early, early on when I was crafting chapters, you know, playing around with what would be there. And I shared sort of a what would become an introduction and preliminary table of contents with my colleague, the late Stephen Gregory, who we just lost in September. We always shared work, and he was very encouraging, as he always is. And he said, the only thing that's missing is a chapter on rage. And he was right. And so I thought, yes, I've got to put it in there and then, You know, I procrastinated writing it. I procrastinated writing it. Then we found ourselves in the moment of George Floyd. So many things have been leading up to it. I kind of start with sort of Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin, you know, all of those moments leading up to it. And then we get George Floyd. And I'm so enraged (laughs) at yet again. And I realized that I'd spent the last four to eight years enraged. And that what I saw happening time and again was the relationship between rage and resistance. And that for me, the writers, the artists, and the organizers were the ones showing us how to take that, first legitimating that rage, because Black rage is so frightening to white people. So we're often taught not to show it, but that the artists and the organizers, like they have every right to be enraged, right? It's legitimate. And then turning that legitimate rage into resistance and one of the reasons why it was hard to write is because it was happening at the very moment that I was trying to write it Mm. right at the very moment we were in the thick of it you know so I started it several times and then I went back because Philadelphia my hometown even though I live in New York was a site a major site of many of the sort of confrontations between police and protesters. And I decided to step back, literally step back and step back in history. <laughs> and to say, oh, there were other people who were enraged and turned that rage into resistance. And what would it mean if I looked at Philadelphia and there was Frances Harper, who I'd always been fascinated with and written about in my career. And she literally says, you know, it's her rage, it's her rage over the death of someone who has been kidnapped and sold into slavery and worked to death, she says, you know, on his grave where I stake what I'm going to spend the rest of my life doing. So she's enraged. You read her letters and she's about to become despondent and depressed. She's already depressed. She's about to become despondent. And then she takes that and she commits her life to radical abolitionism. And so that became the entry point for me we're talking about so the chapter kind of starts with Philadelphia and protests in the 70s and 80s the 70s then goes back to that group of you know white abolitionists and black abolitionists who make Philadelphia this amazing site of resistance and it ends in the contemporary moment so that's what allowed me through it death was hard to write because we were also you know the book is haunted by death by the death of my father but i was finishing it during the pandemic where Black people, brown people, poor people were dying in disproportionate numbers. We were in the middle of mass death and had to write about that too. You know, so I'm finishing this book in the midst of the plague of a pandemic, which is affecting us more than any other people. And the slaughter, because they're still killing us in the street, (laughs) even though we're in the middle of a pandemic. Like, there's no let up to this. So that's why those were hard chapters to write. But they also, you know, were, that's why they had to be written.
0: Absolutely. I'm interested in your methodology as well. And in reading the book and thinking about the way that you marry the deeply autobiographical with this generative theoretical engagement, it's a method I see for myself in the work of Stuart Hall um, in the UK context. Um, I guess more recently in Andy Seal's Technicolor Reflections mm-hmm. on Race and Summer TV, what an amazing book that was. How does one keep those two systems of thought in place when mm-hmm. writing a book like this?
1: Yeah, you know, I think there's a line Christina Sharp has in the wake where she talks about the autobiographical too. And I'll, I'll see if I can find it. But I, I think that you walk a very fine line. So, you know, the autobiographical, and, you know, it comes right out of a kind of tradition of the slave narrative and all of that, right? That the autobiographical is about an individual life, but only to the extent that that individual life is bearing witness to something beyond it, so that it's not a kind of navel-gazing gesture, (laughs) but it's the ways that if I can draw you into this story and I become someone about whom you care and you're interested, here's the story and here's how it relates to a broader set of concerns and issues and stories. So the premature death of my father, the sort of context that might lead to his death the contexts that make it so that there is a carelessness with which he is treated when he's not well, it's very personal and destructive. And yet it's not just me, right? It's indicative, the fact that we die earlier than we should and that our lives are harsher and that we've come up with these rituals around death that have become part of the culture or that the way that police or the medical establishment deal with Black suffering and Black pain is true in my individual case, but is also true larger and kind of larger systemic ways. So, I mean, I think that's the fine line that one walks between using the autobiographical as a way to broach the broader, more theoretical or sociological or historical, in my case, issues and concerns. And for me, in writing those parts of the memoir, if they didn't serve that larger purpose, then they didn't belong in the book. You know, they might be interesting stories about me, <laughs> but if they didn't serve the larger purpose, then they weren't going to be
0: there. I was privileged enough to have been hosted by you as a visiting researcher, the African-American African diaspora studies department during the fall of 2019. And I found it to be a hugely generative space for me. We're seeing the openings of a similar Black Studies tradition in the academy in the UK, but that's been a long, protracted struggle. And being around yourself, your colleagues like David Scott, for instance, I remember going to the Joyce Spadner talk and buying Tomorrow Tomorrow for the first time and reading it the next day. Mm. And those kind of experiences were something that wasn't automatically given to you. Certainly my trajectory, Again, you mentioned the idea of Black studies and things that you study and are studied. Right. Very much my experience up until that moment. And thinking about Colombia and what you developed there, and again, that long, protracted, glacial struggle to get it made. Because in many ways, reading to understand is the index of this creation of a kind of intellectual community at Colombia. Looking back now, what was that process like developing Black studies Mm. at Columbia as a discipline?
1: Yeah, well, you know, I'm just so glad that you were there and presence was such a gift. And also you were there during that period when it was happening, you know, finally was happening. So when I came, Stephen Gregory and I came together, we were recruited by Manning Marable and Robert O'Mealy also recruited me. And then later on, Robin Kelly came. So Manning had his own history of developing Black studies, both in terms of the books that he wrote and the institutions that he built and the publications, journals that he founded all the kinds of things that helped to make a field he'd been involved in. And he had the Institute for Research in African-American Studies, which was an incarnation of Black studies at Columbia. There had been several different kinds of incarnations. And so he sort of laid that groundwork. And as someone who had understood, had been part of building Black studies, just nationally, internationally. And then we took up the next phase of it, which was departmentalizing it, Columbia was way behind in actually formally creating a department. And in some ways, the institute structure worked for us. We could host visiting scholars like yourself. We were able to train students. But what we couldn't do is we didn't have the capacity to hire and tenure our own people, which is really where the power is in the academy. But we certainly saw ourselves as standing upon a foundation that Manning and others before him put down for us, that it was the next logical step. And often a way of trying to make things be about a particular individual. And that was something that we tried to resist as we were coming together as a department. I remember the school newspaper said the five faculty who made African-American studies and we wrote letters to the paper like, no, it wasn't five faculty, like it was all of us. It was a communal effort We had the support of the literal community that we live in, Harlem, and other Harlem institutions that supported us and part of an advisory boards, because that's what you have to do. And we had the community of our students and our affiliates, all who helped develop the vision. And much of that happened in the classroom. You know, it's interesting. Much of the intellectual vision happened in the classroom, but most of the community building happened outside of the classroom. And, you know, everything counts. So the community building in the programming that we did, the community building in the parties that we had, like there's nothing like bonding. (laughs) No, no better way to bond than over a party with some good music and some good food. So all of that went into creating this department and also having the support of colleagues from around the country who supported us as we did it. It was a long-time communal effort. I really have to applaud, one, the vision of my colleagues at Columbia who worked for years to help create what would become the department and the enormous generosity of my colleagues around the country who, whenever I needed them, came to our aid. Either a question about, this is what you ask for, Or this is how we do it there. Or will you be part of an advisory committee so that they can see we have people, you know, we have people looking out for us. It was quite an extraordinary endeavor. And I wrote this book and my other colleagues were writing books at the time that we were also building the institution.
0: I can't help but think about the words that you spoke at that Harvard gathering in February 2020. When you spoke about the potential for black studies or the black studies tradition to venture beyond the academy and you know, informing your shape to social movements for racial justice, of course, this was just four months before the events of June 2020 in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. That took us into a brand new conjuncture of race globally. What's your assessment of the post-George Floyd politics of race in America, but also the role of black studies to that struggle at present?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that those young people who took to the street, and they were all kind of old people too, but you know, really young people at the forefront of these movements, right? who took to the street all over the world, many of them, especially the organizers, are deep readers and deep thinkers. And they were reading, whether they were reading James Baldwin, you know, or they were reading Saidiya Hartman or Moten, or again, we go back to the idea of study. You know, for those who were reading Octavia Butler, right, those who had been formally educated were students of Black Studies, and they had a vocabulary and a language that came from that context, and that language itself was informed by social movements. So I do think that was the case. You know, I think those of us who are older, you know, there were all these things like, oh, we're going to celebrate Juneteenth or, oh, we're going to put up our solidarity against systemic racism. There was all that energy and, you know, Oh, we're going to hire two Black people. or But those of us who've been around know that we've seen those moments before. (laughs) They don't last, you know, and that they are interpreted as ways to kind of strengthen or diversify capitalism when that's never what the goal of them is. And even that's a weak promise, you know, a check that bounces eventually. And I think that what we're starting to see now is that we're starting to see the pushback already. Now, there are some pluses, like, you know, the man who murdered George Floyd is tried and convicted. And if you're an abolitionist, you don't necessarily see that as justice. But that's a first, right? That doesn't happen. Or the people who killed Ahmad Arbery are found guilty when all of us were holding our breath, expecting them not to be.
2: Right? Mm. Um,
1: So, you know, I I can't say that that isn't a movement forward, but the backlash is tremendous. The fact that it only, when it becomes inconvenient to support the kind of change that was demanded, if it is even slightly inconvenient, it becomes very easy to shut down the avenues of change or to ask people to be satisfied with sort of symbolic gestures or gestures that might benefit very small few but don't really address the real issues that put us in the street in the first place
0: I want to conclude by just coming back to the book and the front cover there's a very very striking image there and for me there's something very very haptic about that image when I first saw it, I thought about growing up in the Nigerian Pentecostal church which was massive to me my family Mm -hmm. and my cousins and my sisters and how they patted their hair
2: Mm -hmm. (laughs)
0: I just thought of that image. I thought, well, I encountered someone like that in my formative years, um, in my family, in my immediate environment in Northwest London. Can you give me some background to that image?
1: Sure. Um, I had several images that I thought I might want to use for the cover. That artist was someone who I'd been following. He's actually a Dutch artist, and he has several series. But one of his series is a series of it's kind of photograph paintings that he'd done of black children. And I, you know, been following them online and collecting postcards of them and everything. And I fell in love with that little girl because like you, I knew her. She was familiar, you know, but I also fell in love with her for other reasons. One, I love that she's black, 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 like Carrie James Marshall's paintings. You know, she's her skin is black, black, black. I love her hair. I love that style, which is aesthetically Black. <laughs> I love the fact that one of her twists, you know, perfectly parted and twisted in a kind of disciplinary way we do our little girls' hair. But one of them has like escaped the discipline and come undone, you know. And it's it's just there, living like a little piece of sculpture. But I also the image spoke to me because she seems there's a sense of interiority that we often deny black people, particularly little black girls who look like her. There's a sense of thoughtfulness and pensiveness and quietude in her image, a kind of reflecting self. And yeah, I think it was both the quiet and the interiority that I wanted captured. And I loved her being surrounded by a field of flowers. It really spoke to me and to give visual speaking to so many of the words contained within the book.
0: Farah, this has been an amazing conversation and um, thank you so much for this very rich and generous conversation. I'm really grateful to you for being so generous with your time and um, your thoughts as well. And I look forward to continuing our conversation in the near future.
1: Thank you. And thank you for taking such care and time
2: with um, reading it and the questions that you shared with me. Thank you for listening. For more information about UCL Sarah Parker
0: Centre. Find us at ucl.ac.uk forward slash racism dash racialisation or follow us on Twitter at UCL
2: underscore SPRC.